Hey friends, you're listening to the Hope and Heart Pills podcast where it's talking everything resilience and revolution. I'm one of your hosts, Andre Henry. And I'm your other host, Trishes. And today we have a very special guest. Britt Hawthorne is with us again. Britt Hawthorne is joining us again. Um, Britt is a mama, teacher, author, and anti-bias, anti-racist facilitator. Uh, she partners with caregivers, educators, and families to raise the next generation of anti-racist children. She is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Raising Anti-Racist Children, a practical parenting guide, and most importantly, she's rooting for you. <laughs> As you can see, if you're not watch, if you're not seeing this online somewhere, then she's wearing her sweatshirt that says rooting for you. It's beautiful. Make sure that you look her up and get one of those. Um, and to learn more about her, you know, we will have her uh, website in the notes later. Also, while we're doing that, I keep forgetting to do this at the beginning of the show. This show is brought to you by our generous patrons at Patreon. We could not do this without them. Thank you so much for everyone who is supporting the show. And if you want to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash DeAndre Henry. I think it's DeAndre Henry. It might be Andre Henry. I don't know my link, but it's in the show notes and you can uh, support the show as well. Okay, great. Wow. Brit- <laughs> Did you say wow? What a great Ooh. intro. <laughs> what a great intro. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Britt, thanks so much for coming back to the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's always great to be in conversation. And Patreon supporters are very important. They are crucial in this day and age, in this time with this climate. Um, I think it's so true when we say, show me where you invest your money and then I'll know what's important to you. Yeah. I mean, we... I mean, we do pay for things to make this happen. <laughs> you know, so yes. like, you know, um, so you know, again, we couldn't do it without you all. Um, Britt, last time you were here, you were not a New York Times bestseller. Um, so congratulations on Thank that. Thank you. Um, for the the accomplishment of first off writing a book, it is so hard to do. Um, I think writing my book was the hardest, one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, and I remember when people, when I was done, people were like, oh, so for your next book. And I was like, what? <laughs> it's too soon. It's too yeah, soon. I was like, I don't think I ever want to do that again. Uh-huh. Um, I do want to do that again, though, just in case my agent is listening. I do want to do it again. Uh-huh. Um, Same. Any, yeah, right. Just maybe not yet. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so tell us about your New York Times bestseller, Raising Anti-Racist Children. Well, first, I have to say thank you so much for uh, congratulating me and congratulations on your book as well. Thank you. Um, That is an exciting and such an accomplishment. You know, when I would meet authors before and they would say writing is so hard and I would always be like, "Mm, is it really (laughs) like it always just seems so picturesque and serene and then agreed writing the book. um, was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do because it's not just the act of writing, but also the act of navigating publishing yes as a person of color as a black biracial woman so kudos there um but my book has been born it is in the world and i am so excited and and really really proud of the book that i wrote along with my co-author natasha iglesias and Mm. essentially we wanted to write when you know this this subtitle is a practical parenting guide Mm -hmm. And a big part of my work is how do we not get stuck in awareness 
Yeah. How do we, you know, that it can be so seductive to get stuck there and learning the new language and getting the Mm -hmm. frameworks and, you know, listening to TED talks or going to panels and that can be very seductive and it's so much harder to actually put it into application because it looks different for so many different people. Yeah. And so for my book, there's this balance between both raising awareness and Mm -hmm. offering by invitation, new language that's developmentally appropriate, while simultaneously, every single chapter has practices, whether it's about, you know, finding language that feels affirming to us as caregivers, Mm -hmm. to supporting our children to finding language that's supportive to them. Um, And then a big part of my work is taking an intersectional approach. Yeah. So inside the book, I'll talk a lot about anti-bias and anti-racism. And that anti-bias lens is saying, hey, we all are made up of multiple identities. And as my identities kind of intersect and collide and bump up against your identities, there's going to be this navigation we have to figure out. And we live in what is most commonly known as United States. Mm-hmm. So we cannot somehow sidestep the conversation of racism. There's this undercurrent. And so we're always bringing it back, asking ourselves, asking our children, how is race both present in this conversation and trying to be erased? And or what is what does racism look like right now in this Mm -hmm. situation, in this conversation, in this book? Um, So that's kind of our book in a nutshell that I'm really proud of. I have so many questions about this. The first thing I'm curious about is. What has been like the reception and the kind of feedback that you've gotten from the book from other parents? What are they telling you? Oh, the reception has been amazing. Yeah. So many folks have said this is the book that I needed, the book that I wish my parents had, the book that um, I hope my child's teacher Mm -hmm. will have. Um, So many parents and caregivers and grownups have said, for the first time ever, is there a text that I can engage with, with my partner, with my spouse, with my co-parent. Yeah. And I feel like we're getting on the same page. Mm. And that has felt just profound and impactful because that's what we wanted. Um, And then, of course, there's a lot of folks that have said, I felt very overwhelmed by your book because we cover so many topics. And I always thought, I want the book to grow with your family. Mm-hmm. It was never designed for it to be a one and done. So yeah. we've tried to break it out by ages, whether it's birth to three, three to six, six to nine, uh-huh. and adolescence. So you can always come back. Right. Um, and then we also tried to be very race conscious and say, you know, some of the practices are fam- for families of the global majority. Yeah. While other practices are for white families, too. So gotcha. it's a lot in there. Yeah. Yeah. Brit. I've heard you say, I think maybe it was on your website, that you wish you had this book or your parents had this book when you were growing up. Are there any specific um, life events or like occurrences that you would think back to and think like, this is what I needed at that point? Yes. um, I guess there's like, it's so hard to pinpoint. I think the biggest one that's on top of mind right now is around body positivity um, or body neutrality, kind of whichever 
mm-hmm. you know, direction folks want to take. But I share in the book, you know, I grew up in a very anti-fat household. Mm-hmm. And in fact, my mom was fat. And I never, up until she passed, I never saw her love her body. Mm-hmm. I never saw her appreciate or enjoy her body. Um, my entire life, she always tried to hide. Mm-hmm. And it's such a sore point for me because I don't have a lot of pictures with my mom. Mm. She would be the person that was behind the camera or if she is in the photos, she would always kind of use us to hide. Mm. And so both the ways that she was hyper aware of the way that society perceived her, the way that society discriminated against her and mistreated her. And I witnessed it, Mm -hmm. but also the standard of kind of, it's almost was like expected that it somehow was okay because she had a larger body or a fat body. Oh. And so in the book, I share um, ways that in our household, we're talking about and thinking about our bodies, we're affirming our bodies um, and how we're also not talking about other people's bodies that we trust that people mm-hmm. are doing what is right by their body, that they're doing things that make them feel good. They're eating foods that are nourishing and make them happy. Mm -hmm. Um, And we trust that. Mm -hmm. So that right now is kind of top of mind in the section where we talk about respecting um, the larger body and the fat body in the book. I, oh, go ahead, Trish. Sorry. Oh, I I was just going to expand on, you were saying that people get overwhelmed because there's so many different things that you talk about in the book and then you also separate by ages how did you decide um how to structure the book because it sounds like it's just packed with information yes so my background um, I'm a teacher by trade and so I've taken quite a few child development classes and I knew that I wanted to schedule to schedule I wanted to structure the book by child development, because sometimes when I'm working with grownups and I'm working with teachers, things that they want to do in the classroom where they want to do with their children, I'm like, that's a great activity, but not for this age. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we're rushing that development. And mm-hmm. so it was really important that I give grownups some clear direction um, to say, if you have a typically de- developing child, these might be some activities that are helpful for you. And then trying to take that intersectional approach to say, if you have a child that's three to six or six to nine, you have all of this amazing conversations, playfulness. And I mean, playfulness, not like be silly or to be degrading. I mean, playfulness, like have a like a lightness to your anti-racist work, Mm -hmm. have flexibility, fluidity, being able to say, oh, you're right. You gave me the gift of truth. Mm. I made a mistake. I'm not a mistake. Let's try that one more time. Or, oh, you caught my mistake. Thank you. Right. So within each structure of age group of both thinking, you know, race, gender, class, spiritual affiliation, body size, language, pronouns, gender identity, what are some playfulness activities, things we can think about? Um, and then also, as the book grows with their family, trying to have this spiral approach. So it builds, for instance, the definitions of racism will just build as they continue the work for their children. We don't have to give them this like Oxford definition at five years old. Right. Your first conversation with us is one of our most downloaded ever. 
Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, that is, it's one of, it's one of our most engaged episodes ever. And I remember surveying the folks on my email list and asking them about their questions. You know, we always want to make sure that we're serving people and we're answering the questions that they're actually asking. And this was the number one question that people had was about parenting. Now, I don't have any kids, so <laughs> I'm like, oh, I, I, I don't know what to tell y'all, you know. And so that that makes me excited about, you know, the work that you continue to do. But I wanted to ask you your opinion on why you think this is such an important question for people. Mm-hmm. Um, since this is your area of expertise and you you also have have written a book for parents to do this, why do you think that this is at the forefront of so many people's minds? Um, because they know how necessary this work is. And they also, I think, deep down know that we are better off when we have this work, that I'm a better person because of the work, mm-hmm. that I can reach my fullest potential when I'm able to think critically about who I am the way that I can embrace people or the lack thereof, the way that I'm able to identify in fairness and work towards justice. To put some like numbers and research to it as well, um, we know that by age nine, folks' racial attitudes tend to stay constant unless we experience a life-changing event. And wow. for some people, yeah. And, and that's... That's why. On a side note, which is why I think corporate DEI can be so difficult and challenging for some folks, because yeah. they're really working with a nine-year-old developmentally. Wow. Right? So they're not looking at one or talking to one or working with one, but they really are developmentally. Wow. And wow. that life-changing event could be going to a racially, ethnically, culturally diverse university, college moving, but it could also be something traumatizing, like the nationalizing of the murder of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think that for parents, when you have a really young child thinking about under the age of eight, Mm -hmm. how easy this work can be fluid, playful, they are Mm -hmm. like sponges, they make mistakes, they they don't have deep feelings of shame and embarrassment, because they said the wrong thing, or they got Mm -hmm. it wrong. Right? Um, We also know that between the ages of five to seven years old, having one explicit conversation about interracial friendships can dramatically improve their racial attitudes in just a single week. Oh my goodness. So the research backs it up. I think that also the parents that are living it can feel it. They witness, they're watching their children go to a playground and have never met children and their ability or lack thereof to go up and meet people and just to start playing, develop relationships and connections. Later in elementary years and into adolescence, you have so much more that's going on with brain development and identity, but they've also picked up a lot of social cues and a lot of cultural norms about what looks right or what is expected of me, what Mm -hmm. I should do. And so you're really kind of, I think, like um, bumping up against that. I think the other thing that for parents, why this is so important, they want to get it right, um, is I think that for a lot of parents, they're, they're tired. Mm. They are simply tired of just having the same conversations 
about racism, about having the same conversation about Rosa Parks, Dr. King, um, and not feeling like we're getting anywhere. Yeah. Like, right. You know, when are we going to have a critical conversation about radical activists? Mm. When are we really going to follow in their footsteps? Yeah. And when are we really going to do something that's different in, in our homes? Yeah. I know you run um, anti-racist parenting and educator workshops. I'm curious within that work, has anything been surprising to you? Has like anyone's questions or um, anyone's sort of general understanding coming into the workshop has surprised you? It's hmm, a great question. I'm, and I'm trying to kind of go back in my Rolodex of, is there any questions that have really surprised me? Um, you know, my work in particular really focuses on centering families of the global majority. And so I think that for a lot of folks is surprising. And sometimes they are unsure of which way to go or how to move forward. When we start to recenter those conversations, or we start to think about when I have this conversation or read this book or watch this show, who is it really trying to educate? Who's kind mm-hmm. of the target audience? And how at the end of the day, would it make a child of the global majority or a child who holds marginalized identities? How would it make them feel? And that being one of our very first questions before we even engage into that text. Mm-hmm. And so if we aren't saying, gosh, it's really going to make them feel affirmed, celebrated, or at least feel like this was a really tricky conversation or this is hard history. But I know that it's the truth that's being spoken. Like if those answers aren't being there, then we're not moving forward in the conversation. Um, So oftentimes when I'm working then with anti-racist parents, it's less about their own comfort and their own perfectionism and more about just sitting with the information, sitting with the research, sitting with their children's um, pre-prejudice or curiosity. And moving forward. I'm curious, what do kids of the global majority need to hear around Mm -hmm. racism? Um, What kind of conversation is that? Because I think when we talk about anti-racism or over the past several years, since our generation of folks have started doing anti-racist work, since I mean, it precedes us. I, I remember my early days, like I was around a bunch of white people and I wanted all these white people to learn these lessons. And just like you said, oftentimes people are centering, you know, what do white people need to hear? What are the messages that that kids, that black and brown kids, kids of the global majority, what are the lessons that they need to learn early on? Oh, I love this question. Okay. Here's me. I hope everyone has something to write on and something to write with. <laughs> Number one, this is a good one. Number one, yeah. the definition of racism should not end with because of your skin color. Mm. So regardless of whatever definition you're using, a system advantaged based on race where white people are advantaged and folks of color are disadvantaged or personal prejudice and the misuse and abuse of um, power by institutions, Mm -hmm. whatever definition you're using, it should not end because of your skin color. And so often I work particularly with early childhood and elementary educators and a child will have a question. Well, why were they treated that way? Why did they do that? And Uh, one of the first responses is, well, 
It's because of their skin color. Mm. No, 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 no. It's because of racism. Mm-hmm. Because when you have a child who's in early development of their identity, and on one end, we're saying, we want you to feel really good about who you are, feel good about, mm-hmm. you, know, you have the right amount of melanin. And then we mm-hmm. turn around and say, and it's your fault. Mm-hmm. Wow. You had the wrong skin color. Yeah. So I want them to know that's the first thing that when you experience racism, it is never your fault. Yeah. It is never your fault. It tells us more about the other person than about you. Second thing I want them to know is that when you do experience racism as a child, get help. Mm. Tell an adult, tell a safe person. And when you tell them, you have permission to say either I want to help or I don't want to help. And that's something we've taught our children. When you experience racism from a peer, from a friend, whatever it is, and if the teacher or the grown up says you need to engage in conflict resolution, I'm here to tell you is you don't have to. Mm. If you want to go play kickball, if you want to go to music, if you want to go eat your lunch, if you want to finish your math problems, you can do that. It is not your job to then have to educate the person. We call mm. them the agent and target. Yeah. You don't mm. have to educate the agent. It's the adult's job. Mm. Wow. And too often in classes do I witness teachers read a paragraph or something and then want to like point out to the black kids or the kids of color and be like do you want to tell us about this no because they're not getting a paycheck that's your job (laughs) that is your job and the third thing I think is really important that I want children to be aware of and their caregivers is there's something called race-based trauma Um, or it's race-based post-traumatic, sometimes folks will call it syndrome or disorder. Mm -hmm. And this is really important to know is that when a child experiences either one event or it could be multiple events that start to compound, they can develop this race-based traumatic syndrome. And it's so important that either they reach out to mental health professionals, clinicians, or that they have safe adults to talk to. Because what some of these symptoms can look like in children will mimic depression, can mimic being like mm. apathetic, um, anger. It can look like disengagement. Um, sometimes children will have trouble sleeping. They'll replay the event over and over in their mind. Um, they could have night sweats. They can have dysregulation in their body. And so on one end, we're like, oh, our child just doesn't care about school or Um, They just want to disengage from baseball or soccer shots or whatever the situation is. When instead, there's actually something else that could be at play. So the earlier that we can teach our um, children of the global majority about racism, how to identify it, to let them know it's not your fault. And when it does happen, not if, but when, these are the safe adults you can tell and we will help you. We will do our job of letting the other parents know, letting the teacher know, educating the child. We will do that as your grown up. And then to be aware of any symptoms that might show up, especially if it was a severely traumatic incident, um, that they really do need a village around them to help them through it. That sometimes it's not going to be one conversation to say, well, I'm so sorry that happened. Or, um, you know, sometimes I'll hear uh, Black families that will say, not going to be, it's not your first and it won't be your last, right? Like those are all coping mechanisms that we've developed over time. Um, And there's truth to that. And our children still need us 
to help them heal from that moment of harm. Mm. Yeah, I, I one of the first things I thought about when I read your bio was when you are raising anti-racist children in a world that is generally not raising anti-racist children, is that confusing for the child to have this information and for their peers not to have that information? And how how do you go about explaining how you deal with that? Yeah. Yes and no, right? Yes and no. If, if you're able to um, start off your parenting journey raising anti-racist children and that just becomes the values in your household and that expectation, um, then it's really not going to be that confusing because you're going to end up finding your people, your children are going to find their people. And that's just the way, whether you're raising anti-racist children or progressive children or feminist children, et cetera, um, conservative children, you just end up finding your people. Um, if you like with our oldest, we didn't start off. I didn't know what anti-racist parenting, I didn't know what anti-racism was when I first, um, was a parent. So, you know, just a little bit of background with Carter, our oldest, who's now 16. Um, I was a teen mom. I had him on my hip at graduation and, you know, did the best I could with what I had starting off. And then later on, as I became a teacher, I then started to learn about different liberatory and emancipatory education and frameworks, which brought me into this. So then I think there is this shift and our family lived through that shift Mm. of um, kind of like a a culture shift in our household. Mm. You know, we absolutely upheld many things that upheld like the status quo, upheld capitalism And so as we're unlearning, unpacking, forgiving ourselves, learning that language, we're sharing it with our children. And yeah, we were confused. I was confused. I think maybe probably if you ask Carter, he probably at times is still confused. Mm -hmm. And we go back to our questions like, does this uphold our values? Is this who we are? Mm -hmm. Is this something we're going to care about in five years? And Mm -hmm. that helps us to move forward. I also wanted to share one other thing is that with raising adolescent children, not always, but it's okay if you start to notice that your adolescent children are going to what we call the center, Mm -hmm. right? So the center, we think of like dominant identities, who is centered or praised or privileged. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes in anti-racism, we're kind of always trying to push ourselves into the borderlands and Mm -hmm. say, um, we don't want that. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to give that disclaimer that when they're in adolescence, that's also a key time for their identity that they're trying to find their, they're trying to find their own self. They're trying to mm-hmm. become an individual outside of our family unit. Yeah. And so no matter how you're raising your, ch- your child, I think there's kind of like this common thread we'll see on sitcoms all the time where there's this teenager and they walk through the door and, you know, they look different. They've changed their hair. They changed their clothes or they're talking different. And you're kind of like, you know, and there's like everyone laughs and it's kind of what's going on. Um, and that's okay too. But if we lay the foundation, our hope is that they come back. Mm. Uh, speaking of shifts, I'm curious, Britt, what is it like doing this work on the other side of the 2020 uprisings and the 
the public death of George Floyd. Difficult. Yeah. Difficult in a, in a way, you know, I started practicing anti-racism and consulting full-time in 2017 mm-hmm. when it was not a mainstream word. Yep. And I was like knocking down doors being like, you need this anti-racist training in yeah. your schools. Yeah. And I remember clients saying, we, we want to hire you, but you can't say anti-racism. And I remember being like, well, then you don't want anti-racism. Right. That's a little confusing. Right. And then living through 2020 when everyone was like, give it to me. Right. <laughs> like, give it to we want it all. And we we'll need you to get here yesterday. Yes. And like, and, and everyone being like, and I'm anti racist. Yeah. And now having this huge, what I'm kind of feeling like this pendulum swinging of resistance to the word. It's mm. this, you know, we have this overuse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, misunderstanding still. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult, you know, when people think that they know what anti-racism is and they're coming to you with um, a lot of absolutes, mm-hmm. a lot of if-thens, a lot mm-hmm. of binary thinking. Yeah. Instead of approaching it with curiosity and say, this yeah. is what I think I know. What parts have I missed? Can you help me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, I think, also really different right now when you have, I live in Texas and you have literally an attack, mm-hmm. an attack on anti-racism, but, and, and in general, a constant and persistent attack on people of the global majority, on queer folks, on trans folks, on disabled folks, um, that is happening. And a lot of those then purse strings have closed up. Mm. Oh. Right? So there's a lot where at one time people had had the investment and say, we want to invest in anti-racism. And you had some people who signed on for, you know, a three-year project. Yep. And now they've said, I've had school clients that have said, this year, can we change our theme to belonging? or conflict resolution, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And it's like, mm, I mean, those are ideas within Mm anti-racism. And they're making a really clear shift and distancing themselves. And I think it's just, it's, it's hard on one end, you know that progress has been made and that's why the resistance is here. Yes, of course. And on the other end, it's just, it's also hard to watch things roll back. Yeah. Right. I know we have to wrap up, but we like to end the show with this question. What keeps you going? Can I have a really honest moment here? Yeah, of course. Please. I'm hanging on by a thread. Mm. So I don't in this conversation have something that's keeping me going. Yeah. Except for my systems and routines. Yeah. Right. Like it's not motivation at this point. It's not Mm -hmm. inspiration. It is, I have systems and routines in place of how our family practices anti-racism. And I'm so thankful that we developed those routines early on. um, And we're just hanging on to them, but it is right now I have to say I'm exhausted. 
Yeah. I'm, I'm exhausted with the attack on our work, exhausted with the violence, exhausted with the hate. Yeah. Um, the lack of intersectionality still. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I hope, I'm hoping for rest. I'm hoping for, I don't know, grace, peace, ease. That's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. I think that's actually a really useful answer because sometimes we need, we need those things to go back to just to, just to get through until, until we're not just trying to get through. I really appreciate that answer, not just because of its honesty and its vulnerability, which, you know, I always appreciate, but I've been trying to grasp. Oh. Trying to grasp, but not. Tr- <laughs> and then I, I drop. <laughs> Literally <something>. and metaphorically. <laughs> I drop something right when I say that. <laughs> the universe oh my gosh (laughs) but i have been trying to grasp where are we Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and um i remember i started this show with the with two goals in mind um one i was sitting on a bunch of information about nonviolent struggle and i was just like everybody needs to know about this so I started this podcast and like, all right, I'm going to interview all these revolutionaries and stuff and get the information out there. And my second goal was just really simple. It's like anyone who's doing good anti-racism work on Instagram, I'm going to send them a DM and ask them to be on my podcast, you know? And so I remember it feeling like this little community, you know what I mean? Uh, online, you, Rachel Cargill, Rachel Ricketts. Uh, LNG, I can't remember her last name. Um, yeah, I could, I could keep going. And I was, we were all like liking each other's stuff, sharing each other's stuff, encouraging each other and all kind of stuff. And it was before, before everyone and their mama was claiming to be anti-racist, claiming to believe that Black Lives Matter. And, um, that feels different, you know? So I the, I mean, and I, I get it, you know, we, you know, things evolve, right? So that's one, but the other part is, and I know this from studying social movements, right? Like you have this big swell in it, it wanes. That's a part of it. It's actually so common that like Bill Moyers wrote about this. It's like he has a book that talks about the life cycles of social movements mm-hmm. and the cycle after that peak is called the perception of failure. That's like, Wow. It is. It's that it's that common. Right. Mm. But I didn't think it would feel this way. You know, it's one thing to know that it happens, but it's another thing to like. Now you're living in the white backlash. You're living in the fascist counter revolution. You're living in the perception of failure. And sometimes. Well, the question I've been asking is, is this sense of exhaustion? Is this sense of political despair is it is it just me that's really feeling it this strongly (laughs) or are are others you know and um i know we need to wrap up so i I don't want to like keep going and going and going but i have but i appreciate that that response 
because although I, I still do believe it doesn't have to be this way, I know mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be this way. Um, it has not been easy to continue to hold that position, you know? And so I just appreciate the honesty, you know? Um, yeah. And it reminds me of this, this author that we're going to have on, Ann Svetkovich, who wrote this book, Depression, A Public Feeling. Oh, it's a new one for me. <laughs> it's, it's a really good one. And near the end, she talks about flossing her teeth and mm. about like, well, I mean, the whole thing, public feelings, you know, that depression is a part of these lineages of dis- dispossession, oppression, the continuing kind of political weather we're living under. But sometimes that is what that's what we can do. It's keeping your routine, you know, yes. it, that's that's what we can do. That's what we have the capacity to do. And that is what keeps us going. And I I relate to that, you know. So anyway, did you want to did you want to say something before I I close? Because it looked like you had a, had a yeah, thought. I was just going to say, I mean, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling the exhaustion. And I think what is really hard is both experiencing it on an, on an kind of internalized level that I'm exhausted, but also watching all of my peers that you just named. Yeah. Also watching them be exhausted. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's, it's an exhaustion isn't even like, doesn't even encompass. Yeah. Right. Like saying I'm tired, I'm exhausted. Can't even really just like put a, put words to it, but I'm, I know I'm feeling it. And then I also just ask myself too, like how much of this is by design, Mm. right? Mm. Like how much of this is a tool because I feel like the eco anxiety, I feel the edu anxiety. Like there's so many, the financial anxiety, like Mm -hmm. there's all of this. And then is it by design to then create this perceived exhaustion or real exhaustion? Mm -hmm. And ultimately you stall, yeah. right? Like you just, it's like a car and you just stall out. You're like, this is too much. I can't keep going. Yeah. Um, and I'm thankful. I'm so thankful for folks like y'all who also have built in routines and systems that there's the sustainability around it. Yeah. So that when we are depleted, I could like just keep going. Cause that's like a whole nother thing is like, emotionally being depleted how people in 2020 to 2022 really wanted to consume Mm anti-racism and by proxy consume us oh yeah like yeah just consume us consume our stories yeah um and had this like disposable idea it was like then, then now anti-racism and again, by proxy, us are disposable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could keep going on. I know we have to wrap it up. <laughs> I totally hear you. I do, I do. You know, a lot of us, I saw platforms explode in 2020. You know, um, I got in the way of my own momentum. Like I just got so overwhelmed. I wanted to just disappear. So I was like... Mm. I wanted to just go to Colombia and like start a whole new life. Well, not necessarily Colombia, but somewhere and start a new life. Yeah. And people come looking for me and it's like, Andre doesn't even go by. Like they call him Ricardo around here. Yeah. Who are you talking about? Who are you looking for? You know what I mean? Like he got Spanish kids, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he owns a little restaurant. 
<laughs> you know, or that's you know, that's real. And I have to say, I'm like, I'm so glad. I remember my husband was like, we should expand, we should scale. You know, like you could do these things. And I remember telling him then, like, I cannot build a business based off of white emotions. I cannot build a business based off of white feelings and tears. Yeah, because it will come crumbling down before you know it. There is a dark side to that explosion of platform and stuff like that. Like for me, my merch store was the was the first thing where it's like because, you know, I was writing about I was writing songs about police brutality because that I needed to get it out. But then like yes. that May when George Floyd was killed, my merch store made an insane amount of money. You know, I'm not going to say how much, but it was an insane amount of money. And I took a step back and said, this is not the way that I want people to come to my work, you know? Yeah. And that's partly why I'm like writing love songs and songs about mental health and stuff like that now, because I'm like, I, this is what I will sell you, right? Like, yes. I will, I will sell you songs about resilience and all that kind of stuff. But this right here that we're doing right here on this show, this has to be free, you know? Yes. Thank God because- that y'all are funding it, but it has to be free. <laughs> Because there was also, I was talking to my friend, Tiffany Jewell, and like during the height of this too, and the feelings that we had about, in a, in a way, you know, we had all of these established resources already available for folks mm-hmm. before the murder of George Floyd. Yeah. And then because of that, we were almost in a way like profiting off of yeah. the murder of Breonna Taylor, the murder of yeah. George Floyd. And there was this like, wait a minute now. Yeah. It, yeah. it just felt so icky. It did. That, that it also had to take this for people to say, to care about and say, I want to raise anti-racist children. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think for me, I'm still healing and processing that entire pandemic. And mm-hmm. on top of that, just. I don't know. Here, yeah. here's here's your next book the rise and fall of anti-racism <laughs> there i do have questions about that i am at i do have questions about whether or not anti-racism is dead you know yeah um, I, you know and same. we'll have to we'll have to is have we'll have to have slumber, another conversation maybe it's hibernating i don't know yeah you know and like it might be a good idea to get some of us together to have that conversation you know, mm-hmm. like there might there are a number of people I could think of to just like have a conversation and not just about, you know, an abstraction like anti-racism. But how are you? How are you doing? How can we support each other? You know, in this time, we are way over time. So we're going to let you all listening go. Um, <laughs> as always, thanks so much for listening to the Hope and Heart podcast. Couldn't do it without you all. You'll hear from us next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for choosing to listen today. You can catch up with our hosts online. Trish's is at Trish's Music, that's spelled T-R-I-S-H-E-S, Music, on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Andre is at TheAndreHenry on Instagram and TikTok, and at AndreHenry on Twitter. Catch the songs you heard today and more of their music on Spotify. If you'd like to support what we're doing here and see the video of Andre and Trish's conversation, you can join the Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Andre Henry. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.